So good morning, everyone. Welcome to this podcast, which is a collaboration between Oncology Data Advisor and Med Newsweek. We're really excited today to have this podcast and kind of join forces and discuss some of the topics in oncology that we're all passionate about. Um, so we'll go around and introduce everybody. Um, to start off, I'm Kira Smith. I'm the senior editor at Oncology Data Advisor. Um, so I plan and manage the content that OncData puts out. Um, and I also, you know, help liaison with our editorial board and our fellows forum. And it's really awesome to work with some, you know, amazing people and learn something new about the world of oncology every day. And I'm re really excited to work with all of you and, you know, hear more, more about uh, your research as well. I guess to start on the OncData side, um, Dr. Hadfield, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure thing. My name is Matt Hadfield. I am currently a third year fellow at Brown University uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I'm going to be staying out at Brown uh, next year as a junior faculty member working predominantly in the early drug development and phase one uh, clinical trial space and, and also seeing patients with melanoma. Um, and I have a particular interest in uh, novel immunotherapies and, and overcoming resistance mechanisms as well as uh, immunotherapy toxicities, which is something that I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking and working on. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Kalis? Yes. Hello. I'm Joe Kalis. I'm a ambulatory oncology pharmacy specialist, big mouthful of a title, but I work, I practice at University of Colorado Health or UC Health, if any of our marketing folks are listening in. I'm based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, but have somewhat of a unique role where even though I'm a pharmacist by training, end up seeing and counseling patients whenever they start a new therapy, whether that's first line, second line, what have you, anything from orals to IVs to immunotherapy, and have a large role in building some of our chemotherapy order sets, practice a lot in supportive care and symptom management, um, have a special interest in multiple myeloma. So some of the research and things we're looking into now is tri various treatment combinations, what gets used first, some of the sequencing. So looking forward to expanding on that and then you know, other topics as they arise. Okay, and then Dr. Murabi. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jason Wabi. I'm an assistant professor at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, I focus on uh, breast uh, oncology and I'm an invasive lobular carcinoma specialist. Um, that's my, what my research involves. And uh, this is the bulk of my patient that I see. Um, you might not know, but lobular has been very understudied for years and years now. It's always been mixed with the more common invasive ductal carcinoma, and we're trying to change that. We're trying to focus our research on lobular carcinoma. Um, and that's what I try to highlight on every meeting and everywhere I can be an advocate for lobular breast cancer patients. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And then Med Newsweek folks, you'd like to introduce yourselves and then share a little bit about Med Newsweek as well? Sure. So I'm Gayatri Pramilmenon. I'm one of the associate directors here at MedNewsWeek. I'm also a fifth year medical student from Georgia. Uh, so MedNewsWeek was something that was founded back in the Jan of 2022 by Dr. Spark and Dr. Leifman. And it was really, uh, you know, it, it was founded when misinformation and just general, a lot of uh, misinformation and people were just overall scared because of the pandemic and there was a lot of anti-vaxxers out there as well spreading a lot of uh, misinformation so it was just uh, founded uh, to combat all that and just to kind of make sure that people have the right information where what 
what medical information you have before you make your decision as to what you want to do when it comes to your health and your family's health. So Med News Week was just really founded on the base of that. And uh, we're really passionate about oncology, uh, like, like you guys. So it's something that we're all really passionate about, different subspecializations, of course. So that's something that we really love uh, doing here at Med News Week. And that's why we're all really invested in it. Over to you, Muskan. Hey everyone, it's truly a pleasure and a privilege to be here and speak with the global leaders and some of the most known and the most amazing people that we know currently in oncology, oncology research. Really happy to be here. My name is Muskan. I am also a fifth year medical student from Tbilisi State Medical University in Georgia. And uh, I'm, I'm a fifth year med student. I have a lot to learn, a lot to discover. So when I stumbled upon Medley Week, it was truly like a new world had opened up for me in the field of oncology. And I'm truly really excited for the future and the prospect that is oncology and so happy that I get to share it with uh, Madhuri and Gayatri. I myself am an associate director. I got the privilege to get to this point and work with such amazing people and learn so much every single day. And uh, my interest, as I said, really lies in oncology, oncological research. I'm also heavily into infectious disease as well right now, considering the pandemic that has just happened as well. So uh, why I MedNews Week is truly something amazing, truly something special, as Gayatri just mentioned as well. Our goal, why we started off was to combat medical misinformation, right? But we have uh, grown to a point and we have reached a point now where our main goal is also to reach and help increase the global health equity. We can for sure, there is a huge disparity in healthcare and healthcare treatments, especially related to oncology in different parts of the world. What is present in US, US is the forefront of all research and America and the US, the US health sector has access to amazing healthcare education, but there is, this is not a reality for most of the parts of the world. So one of our goals is, as in Medi-Zee here, all three of us, we stand for global health equity, we stand for spreading good and right information and promoting global health education. And uh, we have been really privileged in that we have actually reached a huge global uh, mainstream audience. We have reached over 70 different countries and multiple different uh, lower and middle uh, human development index countries, lower socioeconomic countries. We have had tons of keynote speakers, renowned keynote speakers, and we have had over 10,000 to 20,000 attendees so far in just a year. So this is truly something amazing. We stand for uh, patient education. We stand for uh, we stand for uh, so many different things. And our audience is a huge, vast variety of people. We have professionals, healthcare professionals, uh, patient advocates, CEOs, business uh, business administration people, and also just mainstream people or people who are not not, uh, not in the medical field as well. So. We started off as wanting to combat medical misinformation, but we are growing into something bigger every day. And there's nothing of a bigger privilege to be a part of something so amazing and to be here today. Uh, hey, everyone. Thank you so much, Muskan and Gayatri. I think you've covered pretty much what I wanted to tell about our organization as well. And a lot of the things I wanted to share to reintroduce myself. My name is Madhuri. I'm an associate director as well at MedNewsweek and currently a sixth year medical student in Georgia. Really excited for today's podcast because oncology has been a passion of mine for over six, seven years. It is a field that I want to pursue in as well in surgical oncology, to be specific. And I've honestly been reading a lot about it, 
learning so much about it. And Menuspeak has been one of the platforms which has kind of shared for me more about the project itself and more about the people as well. So I think that's truly great and really excited for today's session. I don't think there's any more words I can share about our organization because Muskan and Gayatri have definitely covered it well in depth and hope to enjoy today's podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you all. Um, it's great to hear more about Med Newsweek. Um, it's really a great organization and you've made incredible strides in global education and reaching different parts of the world and helping to spread all this information. Um, so I'd like to share a little bit more, more about Oncology Data Advisor as well. Um, so we're an online journal and podcast featuring expert perspectives and conversations really focused on all aspects of oncology care. Um, so this can cover research and treatment advances, um, nursing, fellowship, patient advocacy, pretty much everything in between. Um, as I mentioned, our editorial board and our fellows forum are really the drivers of our content. Um, so they help keep us abreast of all the topics that we should be talking about on, in oncology and what's most relevant today. Um, this year, we're also trying to shine a spotlight on patient advocacy. Uh, so we have two members of our editorial board. Um, their names are Megan Claire Chase and Allison Rosen, who are patient advocates. Um, and they'll, they're excited to participate in future episodes of this podcast as well to kind of shine more of a spotlight on that. Uh, we also do a lot of coverage of the major oncology conferences. So ASH, ASCO, ONS. Um, we speak with all the leaders in the field so that we can really help to share and disseminate the most up-to-date information that's being published. Um, it was actually just at ASCO this past June that I met um, Dr. Leifman for the first time and we connected there. Um, so we recorded an interview there that kind of sparked the conversation towards planning this podcast. Um, so we're really excited for the collaboration and everything we can do with it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you know, where it goes. So I guess um, a question we can go around the room with everyone. How do you think this podcast collaboration between OncData and Med Newsweek will kind of offer a new perspective on oncology commentary? And you know, what are some of the ways that you think that this you know, partnership can kind of help us to join forces and spread the most relevant information? Sure, Kira, I'll, I'll take a stab at it first. I know from my perspective, you know, the, the group of people we've got here today, we have folks in different areas of practice, different stages of their career. And I think that's important because each of us is going to bring our own perspective and background and training into some of the cutting edge advances and changes. And I think also groups like this that I've been part of in the past, it's been very, it's a very fertile ground for exchanging ideas and things of like best practices. So what I might be doing in Colorado might translate over to Georgia well or vice versa. Like our, our patient populations and practices may be different but at the end of the day, we're still taking care of patients. We're still trying to treat people who have cancer and to do it the, do it to the best of our ability. I think it's a great point you bring up about just all the differences and perspectives and just having an like this, everybody comes from different geographic areas, different you know stages in their career. Um, I think that's really valuable and kind of just you know joining perspectives and you know reaching you know even reaching conclusions about different ways that medicine can be practiced. I think echo what Joe said as well. Um, oncology is evolving so quickly, so so rapidly that every time you go to a conference, every time you open a journal, there's there's you know new opinions, new guidelines. Everything happens so quickly that having this type of a collaboration where you have people who are practicing, people at different stages of their careers uh, with anecdotal evidence to to try and weigh in and and really help guide discussions on what's relevant, what's what's not relevant to changing practice is 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 really important for. Uh, kind of cutting through just how much information there really is out there because it, it is uh, overwhelming for, for the entire field of oncology. 
That's a fantastic point. I've I've been mentoring some students and residents, and we've had some chuckles recently because it seems every new paper that comes out, whether it's in the New England Journal or Lancet, this is the new standard of care in some subset of a population. Like, well, what does that what does that phrase even mean anymore? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. How do we take some of that clinical evidence and apply it to real world practice? I definitely agree. And uh, considering I'm a med student still in my training, I think it's so important to hear from the leaders, to hear from the experts, because as you mentioned, oncology is an ever evolving field. There's something new that comes on in every different conference, every different journal. So it's so important to have these conversations, to share ideas because then you're gonna have a new generation of doctors who are involved, who are active and who have the latest knowledge because our growth does not happen without conversation and that's all what we're here for. I honestly agree with all of your points and it was really interesting because I feel, you know, having these, this collaboration itself would kind of help us bring about some crucial health information which we not just us as students would kind of learn but we're also able to share to a lot of our viewers and other members and I think that's kind of going to be really important because this is one of the main things that we need and we're trying to bring about you know to show change so I think that'll be really great as well yeah, certainly especially with the volume of information coming out being able to we can say sift or filter through, okay, what is relevant? What applies to a broad scope of practice? What might be practice changing? You know, joking about new standards of care aside, you know, papers that come through, I think of ones in past years, like the Catherine trial and breast cancer and others that really do move that needle forward, even if it's a small increment, but if it's affecting a specific patient population, we're using therapies in a new way, I think providing that information and, and even perspectives, anecdotes on it, opinions even, could certainly be helpful to the broader population and even patients. You know, the more, more patients I've seen, many of them have gotten very, very savvy with information that's out there. But I think a lot of them are still searching for not, not so much answers, but just places that they can go to find grounded facts, grounded data that they can then use, bring it to their teams and try to make the best decision for them. I think those are fantastic points too. And I, I would just add on to that, that it, oncology is becoming so siloed where, you know, if you're at large academic medical centers and, you know, you're a specialist that only sees uveal melanoma, then you're, you're going to be dialed into that literature really well. And you're going to know all the nuances and you're going to know all the key opinion leaders. But as you get outside these major academic medical centers and it, you know, becomes more oncologists to see one, two, three types of tumors or, or even general oncologists, staying on top of things is, is virtually impossible without having some type of jumping pad for, for what's relevant to actually change things for the patients they treat and, and what's just information that it's nice to know, but not necessarily critical to know uh, when making uh, treatment-related decisions. There's a lot of sources out there. I know we've got colleagues at industry, but you could argue perhaps there's biases introduced with that. We have our major conferences, but the siloing is definitely something that I've encountered before. And I practice as a generalist, but my interests are more in hematologic malignancies. So if I'm have an hour on Saturday morning before the kids wake up, well, I'm looking at some of the things from ASH, maybe then rather in breast cancer or lung or other, other tumor types. 
I definitely agree with uh, everyone's opinions. Uh, when it comes to oncology, my personal belief is uh, it's never too many cooks. I think, as you said, Dr. Kalis, uh, every opinion matters, even anecdotal evidence. Um, I guess the real question is, how long would it be that, you know, when you take anecdotal evidence, what's the transition point to when it's actually introduced into clinical trials? And how do we actually get patient data that might be translated into the drug approvals by the FDA? So I think when it, when it comes to that, I think we still have a little bit of a lag over there. Uh, speaking from the Bed News Week perspective, um, it's really great for us when we have uh, speakers from the oncology field. When we trace back anyone's family history, someone's someone's aunt, or uncle, someone's got cancer, someone's beaten cancer. So it's really uh, it's really heartening um, to see people step up and ask the speakers. You know, my uncle's actually diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer, or my grandmom has breast cancer, and these are the trials that she's currently going through, and these are the drugs she's taking. What can be done? And the speakers are really, they take a moment to ponder upon the question and they really do give a heartfelt answer. So I think that's really the, I really love that part of being a physician. Um, I, that's why I got into this field. I'm just a student like Madhuri and Muskan just in my training right now. But when it comes to oncology, it's really, it's really interesting to me. And when I read uh, data that comes out of different publications, I just want to see it being introduced into clinical trials just to see how much of uh, information that's actually relevant and what can be discarded. So that's just my opinion. Yep, certainly. And in thinking just now like my own practice and, and personal life so far, if you get to know people in your neighborhood and then they find out where you work, the type of field you're involved in, and you've got some of that foundational relationship already where there's that mutual respect and trust. And they're just like, oh, well, I was just diagnosed with this or with that, or my family member was, Joe, what do you think about this? Or Matthew, what do you think about that in your area of practice? And I think that that type of almost a grassroots effort in a way, it's really just based on those individual relationships from the patient level up to, to us as providers. But that's where I see a lot of information getting disseminated, especially too, if patients don't know what sources to go to, but hey, my neighbor across the street practices in oncology, let me see what they think about this. You all bring up amazing points. And like you said, just having this diverse panel of, of standpoints and viewpoints and experiences and training um, is something that's really valuable to have. Um, so that said, as we like plan future episodes and things that we'll be talking about, um, are there any topics that each of you are particularly passionate about, um, both in your research or in your field or in your interest um, that you're looking forward to discussing on future episodes? I'll dive in first, but I'm gonna I'm gonna punt the ball since you know sports analogies, football is beginning here in a couple of days. I know for me, I've got my areas of interest in drugs and things. I'd, I'd actually like to see a little bit more from Dr. Hadfield about managing immunotherapy and immunotherapy-related toxicities, even. Just as immunotherapy has grown quite exponentially in what tumors we're treating with it, what drugs we have available. We have new checkpoint inhibitors coming out soon. Yeah, I'm lag three and others. I'm particularly interested to see like what some of that research is. Maybe we can look at what's out there to prevent some of these, who might be more susceptible to it. And do we have options other than some of our baseline of corticosteroids? I, very valuable tool. I've joked about them being oncology duct tape before, but at the same time, they come with their own drawbacks. Yeah, no, th thanks for setting me up for that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really passionate about immunotherapy toxicities. I, I think, um, you know, immunotherapy has been something I've been using for over a decade now, but 
we still have a very poor grasp on uh, diagnosing immunotherapy toxicities. We have no biomarkers for you know definitively diagnosing. It's clinical di diagnosis when you make them, and especially now as we start trickling from the the metastatic setting of using immune checkpoint inhibitors more into the uh, neoadjuvant setting. You, you know, you're eventually going to be using immune checkpoint inhibitors in settings where you're going to give someone a life-threatening toxicity that will make uh, curative intent surgery no longer available. Um, and, and that's a horrifying thought to think that you could take away the uh, ability to cure someone's cancer with the toxicity that you caused. So I think, you know, coming up with predictive biomarkers is going to be something that's incredibly important in the future. I, I think learning how to, as Shil mentioned, learning how to use steroid sparing uh, agents to treat immunotherapy toxicities. We know uh, from research in melanoma that corticosteroids decrease the efficacy of checkpoint inhibitors and, and you lose the efficacy benefit when you have to give people high dose steroids. I think we, we all know that using high dose steroids um, in any setting is never good for patients for long periods of time for a plethora of reasons. So, I think in my interests are certainly in, in you know, coming up with predictive biomarkers, collaborating with, with uh, different researchers at different centers across the United States to, to do that, as well as coming up with novel uh, IIT concepts for, for steroid sparing um, regimens to treat toxicity. Because I think it's going to be incredibly relevant as we move forward. Again, as Joe mentioned, we had PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. We have CTLA-4, but now we have TIGIT. We have like three. There's other agents that are coming out. There's going to be novel combinations. It's going to get much more complicating. And then that doesn't even get into uh, adoptive cellular therapies like CAR-T, um, ice therapy and bite therapy. I mean, there's just a lot that, that's going to need to be managed. And it's, it's, it's challenging at large academic medical centers. Honestly, it's, in, it's, incredibly challenging at smaller centers they don't see as much volume so it's it's something that i think i'm looking forward to talking more about in the future and, I, and hopefully raising more awareness and, and hopefully making some progress in that area because it's, it's desperately needed absolutely and not and even outside of oncology you know when i counsel patients it's almost every day somebody's starting immunotherapy and it's coming down to me telling them okay well here's some things that could happen but really we're looking for foundational changes and symptoms and how you're feeling and early identification has been so crucial. So we've done some education with our emergency department colleagues, even primary care, where if you have a patient that they're seeing in their own practice that comes in with these you know, various complaints or ailments, raising that awareness that, hey, if they're on immunotherapy, maybe it's related, maybe it isn't. You know, we really can't miss a chance to intervene on, on the early side and prevent something from becoming, as you said, life-threatening or, or even chronic, like some of the endocrinopathies that can happen. Absolutely. And we see this all the time. You know, you get calls from the emergency department or primary care physician, and they say, oh, this patient's on chemotherapy, and then you look and they're on Pembro, and, and that's not chemotherapy. And, and it's, it's hard for oncologists to think about the mechanism of action, how these things cause toxicities, much less physicians that are, that are great at what they do, that they, they're not aware and it misses the chance to intervene earlier, to diagnose earlier. Um, it's, it's a huge issue. Um, and, you know, it's something that happens every single day. And, and we've been using these as FDA approved medications since 2011. So, I mean, we're still pretty far behind. And, and there was a very interesting study that was done at MGH. It's a little dated now, but it was published, I think, around 2018 that basically uh, they did a survey of all the oncologists and uh, hospitalists and, and subspecialists at their center and what they showed was that uh, for pneumonitis specifically, um, less than 50% of oncologists felt comfortable managing that toxicity, but, but less than 50% of pulmonologists felt 
comfortable managing that toxicity. So it really becomes, you know, who, who is managing these and, and, you know, who's owning them. And it gets even more complicating as you have people who are on long-term steroid tapers with, you know, prolonged toxicities and you know, how do you manage them? You know, do you rechallenge or do you not rechallenge? I mean, that data is all still kind of coming out, but it's a, it's a, it's a rapidly evolving field for sure. And all the specialties that can be involved, you know, pulmonary, endocrinology, gastrointestinal, even dermatology in certain cases and toxicities really can affect the entire body if there is an immunotherapy related toxicity. So that's where I think to get the patient advocacy piece, having patients having the base, the baseline information, acting as their own advocate, but then ensuring that as a medical community, we've got folks across that spectrum who are not only aware of the therapies, but know, okay, well, maybe if they're on Pembro or Nevo or one of the other checkpoint inhibitors, who are the oncologists in their community that they could lean on or reach out to? And I think that speaks to some of the, the siloing we're all encountering that we chatted on earlier. Perhaps the immunotherapy and toxicity and management is one way we can begin breaking down some of those walls. Yeah, I think that's something that we're starting to see, you know, that's something we're working on locally here at my center is developing a network of subspecialists who, who deal specifically with these toxicities and, and can, and then chime in when, when something comes up. And I think the other thing that I would, I would mention too, piggybacking off your, your point about patient advocacy, I've seen many, uh, many times immunotherapy pitched as a chemo sparing regimen, which has a lot of interesting connotations because it's really not toxicity sparing. It's not chemotherapy, but if you've ever seen a patient we all have that has grade three pneumonitis or grade three colitis, or, or, you know, I mean, we've all had patients pass away from immunotherapy related adverse events. It's really not giving it the respect that it needs that these have very serious consequences in certain cases and can be life-threatening. It's important that we communicate that well enough to patients. Absolutely. Because I think the general patient population folks that I'll see come in brand new diagnosis, they've got an idea already of what chemotherapy might be. Oh, I might be nauseous. My hair might fall out. I'm going to feel tired or crummy. But immunotherapy is still new on the scene. You know, Maybe as it gets more established and it works its way into popular culture and starts showing up on TV shows or web series or, or whatnot, maybe there's a greater awareness but people hear it and you're exactly right. You're like, oh, doc said I don't need chemo. Like, well, that's true, but let's talk about what we need you to look for and why we need you to look for that. It, I don't want to say we're trading one set of toxicities for another. I think it's a step in the right direction, but it brings a whole new area. I'll say biome. My son's super into Minecraft and I hear about biomes all the time, but a whole new spectrum of where these things could happen and an increased need for that awareness of what people to look for, how we're going to treat it, and then counteracting some of the silos, keeping sure patients have the correct information that they might need. So I I think that's like everything you guys just talked about, really, it struck out to me. It's super important to talk about the toxicities, to talk, and like, we need patient, we need proper uh, transparency between our patients, right? Between you need transparency. So I think that's super important patients need to be aware that yeah all the immunotherapy is awesome it's not just gonna replace chemotherapy they have their own different sets of side effects and that's something super important so completely agreed that radio opened up a new i'm gonna be thinking about this for a while is all i can say 
So considering what I'm in, like, since we're all talking about what we're passionate about in research. So as I said, I'm still in my training. I have been interested in a lot of things, but something that truly sticks out to me in oncology is epigenetics. Uh, when I studied it in my like first, second year of med school, I was blown away. I was like, no way. I had no idea that you could somehow silence our genes or you could somehow activate our genes in different ways. So I have actually been like doing a lot of my own reading, my own research. And what I'm really interested in is seeing epigenetic therapy, how we can silence or uh, express certain genes and what targets could perhaps be involved in cancer uh, genesis, right? And it's also very interesting to me because epigenetic modifications can go on for generations, right? They can be present in certain generations, but they won't be present in certain. So what are the certain factors? Are they cultural? Are they emotional? Are there some form of stressors? What are the environmental factors that may, maybe it's your diet? Maybe it can be a multitude of reasons. So I am so, I'm really, really passionate about how epigenetics may uh, somehow involve in this. I mean, we obviously know the role of epigenetics in cancer, but I don't think we know it to the extent where we can leverage its use and leverage its strength in treatment. So it's obviously a huge field. Our genome, it's huge. There's so much to see, so much we don't know. But this is just yet another unexplored area I feel like we really need to. I mean, obviously, there's tons of research, but I feel like there's so much more that we could do. So epigenetic targets, epigenetic therapeutics, and, uh, and how these may transfer over the generations. What are the certain factors that may I'm super interested in that? And um, maybe in the future, I could foresee something in this. Who knows? And uh, another thing I've been reading to lately is AI. <laughs> I'm sure we all know the revolution that is ChatGPT. And just, I really believe that right now where we are is the, is the level one of AI, right? In the next 10 years, we're going to see a huge transformation in AI and how we use it. Now, I don't believe AI is going to take out doctors, right? But what I do believe is it's going to augment medicine and healthcare as we know it to another front. So I've read a lot of studies which basically talked about how AI and radiologists combined have a greater diagnostic strength than AI alone and radiologists alone. I read a study, I did a, I've, I've read studies in breast cancer research and many other different types of cancers, right? So what I truly do believe is how can we leverage the strength of AI and augment cancer therapy across the world, whether it be in risk stratification or it be in decision, patient decisions or whatever. There's so many different aspects that we could explore this in. And AI is just an, an amazing, amazing tool. I don't believe it's here to kick us out. I believe it's here to augment mankind in a way we've never known before. So I'm really passionate and really interested in application of AI to augment oncological healthcare. I believe it has a great potential. So these are the two fields I'm super interested in. Who knows, maybe we could uh, look further into how AI could help in seeing various epigenetic targets, identifying them and treating them. Maybe we could combine them. Who knows, it's just something I'm interested in, something I believe deserves and something I believe we should be putting our finances, our interests and uh, it's just unexplored and I believe it's something worth looking into. This is just what I think. Thank you so much. So I really enjoyed talking with all of you, listening to all of your points. So uh, the thing that I'm really interested in, and I think could, uh, could you know, use a deeper perspective as well as pediatric oncology. I'm really, really interested in pediatrics. And uh, according to statistics, like when it when we compare 1970s to right now, the five-year survival rate for cancer pediatric patients 
was around then it was about 28%. Right now we're well above 80%. I think it has a lot to do with how far we have come in the treatment of pediatric, uh, in terms of pediatric care and oncological care diagnosis and different treatments as well. Uh, it, a lot of credit lies immunotherapies and CAR T cells and all that. But I also think it really depends on uh, how fast we catch it, especially when it comes to pediatric patients. And just talking a little about uh, patient advocacy as well, uh, according to studies, like it's the, there's a huge financial burden upon the parents when their child is uh, diagnosed with cancer, especially the first year. So I think physician, patient, parent relationships have to be really uh, emphasized upon when it comes to uh, patient care in pediatric oncology. And I think it really, we kind of need to find a good plan in terms of healthcare insurance, in terms of the uh, prognosis and uh, different types of treatments as well that we can do for pediatric uh, patients. So I think this is something that I would really love to hear an expert come and speak about. It's something I've read a lot about and I'm just really excited to do more in this field. I loved all of your topics that were shared so far. And personally, for me, I think one that's something that's really important is advanced pain management, because we see such a huge different changes of techniques other than over-the-counter medications, opioids, and now we're seeing so much of a neuromodulation of pain as well. And to see how each of these techniques further improve and how they are constantly emerging, how they can help, how we're trying to see more of peripheral nerve stimulation, acupuncture even, or even spinal cord stimulation. So how to know that whether these approaches can be actually employed for all particular areas, or is it more specific? And can it actually address the significant unmet clinical need that's required? And how this can further help with post-operative or patients who are in remission? How can it help ease their life as well? So kind of knowing how this whole IDD pumps can actually help and you know be a significant part of the cancer pain management itself is honestly something I'm really interested in. And to continue with that in terms of post-operative post functioning, I really believe that something that we should invest in is mapping, you know? We're already seeing it in so much for neurosurgery as, as to, you know, preserve brain function itself. But if we can actually have something that can help us track the way or how the spread is happening inside, this might actually, you know, make it more easier and can help to preserve the whole functioning of certain parts, patients' ease of comfort as well, because having something to identify and thoroughly understand the connectivity can maybe actually improve how the patient's treatment, care, and planning will totally be as well. I think these are some of the points that I'm truly interested in and love to learn more and get more opinions on them as well. Awesome. Um, and Dr. Mwabi, I know you've done um, a ton of research in lobular breast cancer, and we have an interview coming up next week, actually, for Breast, uh, breast Cancer Awareness Month about some of this. Um, any particular topics in, in breast cancer or lobular in particular that, you know, you're passionate about discussing? Yes, uh, breast cancer is an ever-evolving field, to be honest. Uh, a lot of research always being conducted and uh, published. It's important to go through those research because a lot of time, uh, Companies want you to think it's uh, uh, practice changing and stuff like that, but it's important to go through the details of each study and really uh, tease out if it's truly beneficial. And sometimes statistical uh, significance is not clinical significance. And it's important to 
to go through those and uh, and understand more if it's truly practice changing and how it will change the 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 field uh, for lovelers specifically yes it's an emerging field unfortunately at this point in time there is not much clinical studies happening we're trying to change that by opening some iits at my institution and other institutions so in the next few years definitely we'll be getting more and more research specific for lobular breast cancer um, and yeah we'll ha be happy to discuss them when uh, the time comes great awesome well these are all amazing topics and really amazing avenues that we can kind of go down in the future definitely a lot of fodder for future episodes I'm like beyond excited to see where this collaboration leads us and so happy to be having this conversation with all of you today with this amazing amazing time that's all I have to say. <laughs> Likewise, I'm really excited, um, you know, for everything we're going to be able to do with this and to for talking with all of you more um, as you know, as time goes on. Um, so again, thank you all so much for coming on today. This is a really fantastic conversation. And I'm, again, looking forward to seeing where all of this goes. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. thank you so much. Take care.